are in Luke chapter 11, and we're in verse 37 today. Uh, right on the heels of where we've been, Jesus is in, a, in the midst of a very tense conversation with uh, skeptics. Matthew's gospel tells us they are the scribes and the Pharisees. They are the very religious people of the day, which is interesting. We, would, we might think that Jesus would be in a great debate with uh, skeptical atheists, atheists that are just skeptics that don't believe in him, but he's not. He's in a debate. He's in a hot, a heated argument with the religious leaders in Israel. And uh, that's what makes it all the more difficult to understand. But, and yet we see it today in any kind of religion. You know, I've titled the, the sermon there, if you have your, your bulletin, Religious Nonsense. I think all religion is nonsense. Religion is some feeble man-made attempt to, to make God happy. And you're never going to do it. You killed his son. You and I killed God's son. How are you going to make him happy? If someone killed your son or your daughter, could getting baptized make it better? Could giving 10% of your income make it better? We killed the Son of God. There is nothing, nothing that we can do to please the God whom we killed in the flesh. Yet God has made the way. He's granted us peace through faith in Jesus Christ. The one that our sins killed. We have peace with God through that. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And our goal in any church, the goal of a church is to bring glory to God by preaching the gospel, to receive Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of your sins. And so Jesus is going toe-to-toe with these religionists who want nothing to do with God in the flesh. They are giving credit to his His acts as uh, works of the devil. He's cast out a demon. He's made people... Uh, that were blind, he's caused them to see, he's caused people that were mute, be able to talk, to hear. He's even raised the dead. And people are saying, no, he does what he does by the power of the devil. There is no greater insult. Yet we do it all the time. We give credit to the creation of the world, to some, some thing we call chance or fate. What is that? Ch- isn't, isn't chance just a word we use for odds or fate? Well, what's Fate. What is fate? Who is fate? God is the creator. Give glory to God as the creator. You would think that at the end of this, as Jesus is, is in the midst of this and condemning the people that were lashing out at him, that he might want to make nice. We see in 11, 1137, uh, now when he had spoken, that's after he had said these tense words from verses 14, chapter 11, verse 14 through 36, When he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him. Oh, what better way to trap someone than to have lunch with him? Put them in a situation that's that's comfortable, and let's go have lunch. Let's scrutinize everything he does and says. Sometimes I wonder if that's what happens when I'm invited to lunch or dinner. Come to our home. That's why I don't really like to go into homes. I prefer to go out to go to restaurants. It's a little safer. I don't want to go where your guns are. I don't want to see your gun collection. I don't know if you like me. I don't know what you can put in my food. I, I'm kidding. A little bit. <laughs> this Pharisee asked him over to lunch. I don't know why. If it was, does he want to bring the tone of the argument down, or is he just trying to catch him in a, in, a, in a lie, catch him in something he says or does? Probably the latter. He asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in, and he reclined at the table. 
You go into anyone's home, you recline. You don't sit in a chair, you, you lay down. You prop yourself up on your elbow and you turn your feet away from the table and you eat, usually with other people. And it didn't take long for these folks to find a problem. Many of you, we can relate to this. You know, if you've ever had a pastor in your home, you, you come in the moment they knock on the door and you open the door, do, do they have a, a warming gift? You know, do they bring uh, flowers or, or, or a dish or something? Or how are they dressed? I mean, I've had people say, wow, I've never seen a pastor wear jeans before. I have. Um, one lady I'd just gotten, she, I tried to make it work to where I get over, she, see her and her husband years ago, and I had, been, I had worked out that morning with some friends, or played basketball or something, and I had to get over, and, and I come, I'd come over and my shirt tail was out. I didn't have time to, I had just put another shirt on on top of the sweat, and, and she was just stunned in, 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 in good amazement. I didn't know that a pastor would do that. Would do what? Wear a shirt, not, a, not tucked. Okay. You know we're real people. Another lady said one time we came to a picnic out here at the church and I put a baseball hat on. I've never seen a pastor wear a hat. So I know people are watching. And not, I don't know that people have been offended by those things. It's just that, and I, I guess it's something like, you remember when you were a kid and you went out to eat and you saw your teacher, your third grade teacher? You thought, do they eat too? <laughs> you wonder, these teachers are real people too. Well, Jesus goes in, he reclines at the table. Note verse 38, when the Pharisees saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. He was surprised. Huh, what's he doing reclining at the table? I didn't see that he went over to the water jar, the water bin, and washed his hands. Now, mind you, that's what my grandmother told me every morning. Get up, we're not spent the night at the house. Go wash hands, wash hands and face. And I always, as a kid, I was wondering, what, what did I do? I... Didn't, wasn't playing in the mud all night. Well, wash your hands and face. What you do? It's what you do in the morning. Okay. This is not about bacteria. This is not about bacteria. The Jews did. No one knew anything of bacteria. It wasn't even cleanliness. It wasn't about good hygiene. It's a ritual. I want to show you what the ritual is. It's given to us in detail in Mark's gospel, which is just one gospel over to your left. In Mark chapter 7. Let me read this to you. Mark chapter 7. It's the same context, and yet Mark gives a parenthetical comment as to what this Pharisee is upset about. Jesus just went on in, didn't wash his hands, he reclines at the table. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 3. And you'll see there in verse 2, they'd seen that some of his disciples were eating bread with impure hands, that is, they had not washed. This is a, or their disciples hadn't washed. And so Mark gives, puts this comment in parentheses. It says this, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. It doesn't say thus washing the bacteria off their hands and for good cleanliness. They are observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and of copper pots. In other words, they do this as a ritual for holiness. Wash the hands. One rabbi is quoted as saying uh, is that if you are washing your hands regularly in the ceremonial washing, get this, you guarantee your place in eternity. How about that? Now, that's a religion. Another uh, entire group of them believed that there was a demon named Shibta. Shibta, S-H-I-B-T-A-H. Don't ever name your kid this. Shibta, that this demon attached itself to your hands at night. 
And the only way to rid you, I'm not making this up. Do you think I would make this up? Some of you are about there going. It would attach itself to the hands at night, and the only way to get rid of the demon was to wash your hands in the morning through a ceremony. Otherwise, the demon would go into your body and affect your life thereafter. Wash those demons off. And it wasn't just going in and, you know, doing this. The water had to roll down. It had to, had to go through your fingers, had to roll down your wrist, had to roll into certain places. That's called religion. Religious nonsense. Jesus, I'm still in Mark. And Jesus says this to these people who are requiring that you go through this ritual. Mark chapter 7, verse 6. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far, from, far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. That's what a religion is. Man-made tenets that are preached in order to make people obey and make them holy. Man-made, not found in the Bible. We're not talking about what the Bible says. We're talking about what man teaches. Here's what you must do, and Jesus is saying, your mouths speak things that seem to honor me, but your lives are far from it. Stay with me in Mark there, verse, chapter 7. He's talking about uh, how, how food doesn't make you unclean, which is going against the Jewish laws of the, what the Bible teaches. The Old Testament teaches there's certain foods you don't eat. They make you unclean. Jesus Changed that though. In verse 18, Mark 7, 18, and he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also that you do not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. So if you want to be a Hebraic Christian today by obeying the Old Testament law, you have that freedom. But that doesn't make you holy. Just means you're obeying Old Testament food laws because you want to. That's okay. You're not in sin. You are in sin if you tell others they have to do the same. Jesus declared all foods clean. Later on in Acts chapter 10, uh, God put it to, to Peter. Peter, eat. Eat these unclean things. Peter said, I've never touched unclean things. I would never do that. God said, don't call unclean what I've made clean. So it took a little while for the Jews to figure this out. But Jesus is declaring them clean. Note in verse 20, and Jesus was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, or the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Now, if you were defiled this way, do you think washing your hands is going to make it better? Of course not. And so Jesus has turned up the heat. He goes in. I'm back in Luke chapter 11, verse 38. When the Pharisee saw, saw it, that he hadn't washed, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. The Lord said to him, I'm sorry. In order not to offend, I'll wash. If you're reading your Bible, if you don't have a Bible, you think that's what he said. But that's why I say things outside the Bible so that you'll go, nope, it's not there. Jesus doesn't say that. You might think that he, he, he would think to do so. Look, let's calm this situation down. Let's get a little bit hot. Let's bring that temperature down. No, Jesus is going to bring it up. But the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. 
<laughs> When's the last time you went to somebody's house and, and let them have it like this? I wouldn't need anything after this. Folks, don't, don't take lightly what the Lord is doing. You and I think, no, we've got to be politically correct, got to be nice to everybody. Nice is not always in the gospel presentation. This is God incarnate, God in flesh. And he is expo- he's exposed what they are and who they are in the previous passages. Now he's in this private meeting. There's other Pharisees there. And he tells them, you are full of robbery. That's stealing and wickedness. You fools, you foolish ones. Now he's resorted to calling names. Doesn't the Bible tell us in Matthew 6, don't call anyone a fool? Unless they are. It's not about name calling, but what is a fool? A fool is the following. A fool just isn't someone that you don't like or it sounds like a good word to use. A fool is this. According to Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, the fool does what? Says in his heart, there is no God. Now, folks, everyone believes that there is a God. Even atheists believe there's a God. They don't want to admit it. They know there's a God. That's why they've set themselves against that which they don't believe. Everyone believes in God. A fool is a person who believes something and denies it. That's what a fool is. To know something and deny that. These men, they know that God looks at the heart. But they have changed their lifestyle to doing things on the outside to look holy and pious on the outside, but in the inside, they're full of robbery and wickedness. Therefore, they are fools. Jesus simply calls them what they are. You clean the outside of the cup and the platter. Inside you are full of robbery and wickedness. Matthew 23, 25 adds self-indulgence, which is to say doing everything you want to do for your own selfish purposes. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity. What does he mean by that? What is within is within our hearts. Anyone can serve God with their hands. You make up a rule, I'm going to wash my hands to the glory of God. Oh, I'm sure God is so appeased by that. I can see God in heaven, the third heaven, dwelling in unapproachable light going, he washed his hands. Or there's people that are part of various religions today and they say their prayers. Don't you like the air quotes? Say their prayers. What does that mean? Well, they said a prayer. What if, guys, I thought I was thinking about this. What if every day you required your wife, when you walk in the door at the end of the day, you required her to say, hello, master. Hello, great one. What if you required it? This is what I want. This is what I must have. And your wife, not wanting to argue, goes, whatever. So every day you walk in, she goes, hello, great one. Hello, great one. Hello, great one. Does she mean it? Maybe if she came up with it and it was her idea, said no one ever, where she decided, hey, every day you come in, dear, I'm going to say, hello, great one. That's never happened and it never will. Nor should it. But if it's required, does it, does it mean anything? 
If saying prayers, this prayer, I'm going to say this prayer, I'm going to rattle off a prayer, a recited prayer that's written down that I say all the time. I'm going to say this one here and that one there. I'm going to say a bunch of Hail Marys over here and a couple of Our Fathers over here. Do we think that God, who dwells in the third heaven, an unapproachable light is going, I feel better now that they said six Hail Marys. How does that matter? How can it matter to God? Do we think that God cares, even in our baptisms, that we go under the water and come out and God's going, oh, I'm finally appeased at that. Or if you christened your little baby and got water poured over his or her little head, do you think God's going, oh, now they're saved in case they die? It's water poured on a head. It's a tub of water and someone going in and out. It doesn't appease God. It's an outward symbol. It doesn't matter on the inside. It doesn't matter on the outside. And Jesus said it. Actually, Isaiah said it. 29, 16. These people honor me with their their lips, but their hearts are far from me. God hates religion. He's not looking for us to do this, do that, do that. Check these boxes of religion. If you were a Roman Catholic or a former Roman Catholic, you were accustomed to going to Mass. Now, Mass is not a worship service. In the Roman Catholic system, Mass is a re-sacrificing of Jesus. Whereas you, the good thing about Mass is people that go, they know that they're sinners. They want to go and get their conscience clean. So they go to Mass, they partake of the supper, they take bread, and the priest takes the wine. You can't take the wine, he does. And your sins are forgiven because the bread becomes the body and blood of Jesus. He dies again inside of you, and your sins are forgiven. And you go out to sin, and you go do it again. And you sin, and you do it again. This is religion. Nothing in the Bible teaches this. In fact, the Bible teaches the opposite. See, our Lord and Savior died once and for all. And those who receive Him are forgiven once and for all. That doesn't mean we don't confess. It doesn't mean we don't repent. But the worship is in the belief, the understanding that Jesus' one death covers all of our sins. That's not religion. That's a historical event that happened. We look to it. Are we a religious church? We are a church that has the pulpit in the center of the building where the word of God is primary. It sits in the shadow of the cross behind me where our redemption and our salvation was given to us, was made, was accomplished. Well, the Word of God, whether it's from me or anyone else, the Word of God goes forth. That's what's central. To hear what God has said. God, Jesus says that God the Father searches for those. John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. He searches for those who worship Him in spirit and in truth, not in ritual and in lies. God searches for it. He looks for those who want to worship Him in their spirit. Not saying their prayers, giving their 10%. I got baptized. I took the Lord's Supper. I did this. I did that. I did. You killed His Son. How does any of that atone for that? It doesn't. Jesus atoned for it Himself. And whatever we call religion now is simply the overflow of our heart saying, thank you. 
And as I told you last week, it's not a religion. It's a what? It's a relationship with God. I have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I'm not religious. These religionists are trying to get at Jesus. And he tells them in verse 41, give that, but give that which is within as charity, that of your heart. Not doing things that you think appeases God's wrath, but giving from your heart. And then all things are clean for you. You can eat anything you want. Eat with whatever clean hands or unclean hands you want if your heart is right with God. And the only way your heart can be right with God, listen to me, is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. There is no other way. You can't give enough money to atone for the fact that you are responsible for killing God. You can't. If you killed my son, you couldn't give me enough money for me to say, okay, you're forgiven. Now I forgive you for killing my son. Never. There's no money in the world, not enough favors you can do to atone for killing my son. The only way I can forgive you, the only thing I can do to forgive you if you kill my son is by grace decide to forgive you. Isn't that right? Are your children worth more than that? Or less than that? And isn't that, isn't that exactly what God did? Decided to by grace? He didn't ask for anything in return. He did it all. What were his last words from the cross? It's finished. Paid for. That little phrase, it's one word in Greek. Tetelestai. It's, it's an accounting word. It's a word that accountants used in that day, in that particular form of Greek. It means this, paid in full. Pay your house off, last, pound, last payment, in the little Excel worksheets they had in the first century, tetelestai, paid in full. You don't owe anything on your house anymore, tetelestai. Jesus' last words were paid in full. You can't add anything to it. So Jesus makes it even worse after he's made it worse in verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees. It's not just the one that invited him to lunch. There's others there. Woe to you. That word is an onomatopoeia. I love saying that word. Remember your onomatopoeia? It's, it's four letters in Greek. O-U-O-U-I. Really, it's O-U-O-I. Ooh. Ooh. Woe. It, it expresses grief and terrible sadness. Ooh. To you Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb. Now, that's pretty good. Tithing in the Old Testament is throughout the Old Testament. It was never just the 10%. You gave a 10% of your flock, gave a 10% of your, your, uh, your produce, gave a 10%, a little extra 10% off the what's left over. In fact, the tithing system of the Old Testament was all meant to pay the priesthood, which was the government of Israel. And it came to between 23 and 25% of a person's income. How about that? That paid the priesthood. When the monarchy came on the scene, now they're paying more for not only for the priesthood, but for the monarchy. So people tithed in those days. By the way, the New Testament never teaches a tithe. Not one time in the New Testament are we told to tithe. Some of you are going, whoo, <laughs> fantabulous. No, it says to give cheerfully, 2 Corinthians 9.5. Give cheerfully. Of whatever you decide it's the overflow of your heart. But the Pharisees, they tithe. They not only tithe what the Old Testament said, they would go in it. I want you, we've got in our closet in our pantry, you open up and you've got around the wall, we've got all our little herbs. We've got cayenne pepper, we've got the Italian seasonings, we've got this, we've got that. Probably like you do. 
When they would buy a little thing like that, they they didn't, but if they did, they would go in and they would find 10% of it and tithe it. Now that's religious. You pay a tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb. Oh, you're so righteous. And yet disregard justice and the love of God. You disregard justice and the love of God. You know that religionists are religionists when they have no love of God. They don't do what they do out of love for God. They do what they do out of love for themselves. We're doing what we do so that God will love us. When a real Christian does what they do because God loves them. It's a big difference. So you act like and do a lot of great things and yet you throw aside justice and the love of God. But these are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees. Now, by the way, he's saying, look, keep on giving. Give of the tithe tithe of the mint, the rue, and the cumin, and whatever else you're doing. But make sure justice for those, and really the justice is not that people die because they've done something horrible, although that would be part of it. Justice would be to the, the, the widows and the orphans of the day. Give justice to them. Help them out of your love for God. Some have used this and say, look, Jesus says you must tithe. Here it is. He says, these things you should have done. This is Old Testament. Old Testament, even though we're in the New Testament, Jesus is talking about what went on back in the Old Testament days. He also talks about fasting in Matthew chapter 6. He doesn't tell us to fast, but he's telling those who do fast, here's what you do. Here's what you're after. You want people to, to think how great you are when you're fasting. Do one, but do it for the right reasons. Verse 43, woe to you, Pharisees. Again, Pharisees are the religious elites of the day, conservative religions, religious elites. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplace. Hello, Rabbi. Hello, glorious Rabbi, glorious one, great exalted father. You ever had somebody correct you? Uh, Because maybe you have a great title you want to be called. You know, I'm not into titles. My name's Lance Waldy. I prefer, however, to be called Reverend Brother Doctor. I just, just really like that. Don't ever do that unless you're kidding around. My name is Lance, and, and I'm glad that that's really all I care to be called because that's really all who I am. You know you're a religionist when you are demanding that people call you by your academic titles. You know it. I can't imagine someone calling me something. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I only answer to doctor. I only answer to high reverend. These people loved it. You love the best seats. You love what people call you. Woe to you, verse 44. You are like concealed tombs. And the people who walk over them are unaware of it. Matthew 23, 27 calls them whitewashed tombs. A tomb in the Old Testament could be anywhere. And if you walked by it and you touched it, you became unclean. And as the, the city of Jerusalem swelled with people, there's more and more people around there. They would come for the, for the great feasts. And if you were unclean, you couldn't partake of the feast. Passover, which is also called unleavened bread, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets. These were high days. People wanted to be clean so that they could, ceremonially clean, so that they could partake of the feast. But if you accidentally bumped into a, a tomb, you're unclean. You can't eat. 
And so what they would do, apparently, at feast times, is they would whitewash them. They would clean the tombs. Clean them on the outside so people could recognize them. Jesus is saying, you're like the concealed tomb. Anyone who comes near you becomes unclean because of your false teaching. And Jesus, when he says in Matthew 23, 27, he said, you're like whitewashed tomb. You clean it all, it looks all nice on the outside, but on the inside, what's in a tomb? Deadness, rottenness, dead men's bones. So Jesus is saying, even though you think you're people that bring people to God, you're actually making people unclean. You're like a concealed tomb. People aren't aware of it. This is my favorite passage in all the Bible. Verse 45, one of the lawyers said to him, teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. I'm sure Jesus, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to offend. Do you think Jesus meant to offend? You don't talk like this unless you mean to offend. Offending people is important sometimes in a context. It's sometimes the only way people will listen. I have watched people stand up about face and leave and never come back. I know what I've said. I've never been happy or proud of it, but I know what job I have to do. I don't have to face them when it's all over. I have been assigned to be a shepherd over sheep, a preacher, and I will answer to God on whether I taught this. One of the most sobering passages in all Scripture to me comes from two chapters in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 3 and Ezekiel 33. And God on two occasions tells the prophet, Ezekiel, go tell these people they're in sin. Go tell them they are in sin and they need to repent. If you don't tell them and they die in their sins, I'm holding you responsible. If you tell them of their sins and they continue to die in their sins, you're not responsible because you at least told them. I think the same principle is with any preacher. You cannot ignore the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room is we are all wretched sinners. I don't care who you are. I don't care how good you think you are. We are in need of a Savior to wash away our sins. Jesus meant to offend. And he's with these particular guys, you can't talk soft and easy to them. Woe to you. Teacher, when you say this to the Pharisees, you insult us too. The lawyers, by the way, are scribes. A scribe is one who transcribes. They write. They were responsible for keeping the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, accurate, updated. Because back then you couldn't run copies off on a Xerox machine. Ink and paper degraded over time. The scribes were there to make sure new copies were done. They had very strict limits on how they did this. Between every letter of the Hebrew alphabet, there was the distance of two hairs. How'd you like to be measuring that? Uh, every letter had to be counted at the end of the sentence and at the middle of the sentence, the middle of the page, and at the bottom of the page. And if it didn't line up with the one they were copying, they threw it away. Why did they throw it away? Because they didn't want anyone to get a hold of it. It was wrong. It was destroyed. That's why there aren't a lot of Hebrew manuscripts that are found in the sand, as there are the Greek New Testament. The scribes, by transcribing the law, became experts in the law. They knew it. In fact, they told the Pharisees how to interpret it. So scribes and Pharisees, that's why they go together. This is, they're lawyers. They knew the law. So this one says, you insult us too, but Jesus said to him in verse 46, woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens 
with one of your fingers. Giving burdens to people is what religion is all about. You need to do this, you need to do that, you need to say this, say that, give this amount of money, and then maybe jump through enough hoops, God will find you okay again. He'll meet with you again. But he's saying you weigh people down with these burdens, and you yourselves won't do them. If you grew up in a religious system, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Woe to you, verse 47, for you build the tombs of the prophets. And it was your fathers who killed them. (laughs) To build the tombs of the prophets. Let's build a new tomb for Jeremiah, whom our fathers killed. God didn't want tombs built for the prophets. What did God want? He wanted his people to obey the prophets. They're dead. Their bones are, they mean nothing. Their words. God used these men as vessels to bring his word. By honoring them through a a new tomb, Jesus is saying, you're taking part in what their fathers did to kill them, what your ancestors did. Verse 48, so you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers because it was they who killed them and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God or God in his wisdom said, I will send to them prophets and apostles and some of them they will kill and some of them they will persecute. Now, why would God send apostles and prophets? And he did. He sent John the Baptist. He sent God incarnate, Jesus himself. Peter, James, John, the apostles. We read about what the Jews did to them, all of them. Killed John the Baptist. Killed Jesus of Nazareth. They killed Peter. Killed Paul. Killed James. John died of old age. All the others were killed. Read that in the book of Acts. In church history. All of them they will kill, and some of them they will persecute. And why did God send them? Verse 50, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. Here's what Jesus is saying. God is going to send to you prophets and apostles in the future. John the Baptist, Jesus, his apostles, the disciples. He's saying, I'm sending to this generation of Jews, the first century Jews, which was apparently the worst of the worst. Remember, Jesus called it a wicked generation in the previous context. He sent them to that generation because he knew how wicked they were and that they would kill Jesus and all his apostles. And after they did, Jesus was doing it so that he could hold them responsible for every prophet that was killed in the Old Testament. Let's get and find out here how long every prophet... Verse 50, since the blood, or so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel, that's Genesis chapter 4 when he died, to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the temple and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Wow, if Jesus wanted to turn the, the heat down, he failed. But that's not what he wanted to do. He needed to bring the heat to boiling in this situation. He is telling those scribes and Pharisees, the religionists, you guys, God is going to hold you responsible for the death of Abel in Genesis 4, first book of the law, all the way down to Zechariah, the last prophet, as church history closes in the Old Testament. 
You, even though you didn't live during those times from Abel to Zechariah, God's going to hold you responsible for their deaths because they're going to be the ones that kill the Messiah. Now, that's a wicked generation. Is there precedent for this? Yes, actually. You remember when God destroyed the earth in Genesis chapter 6? Under Noah, preserved Noah and his family? God was meeting out all of his wrath on generations that had died prior to that. On that generation. They all died because of what had transpired up to that point. In the end, when you read the end about what happens in the book of Revelation... All of the sins of the Jews will come upon that generation that lives when Jesus returns for everything that happened in previous generations. I wondered about maybe perhaps an application for us, and this is what I came up with. Our ancestors are full of sins. I I don't know how God blessed this country. I don't know how it came into being. God overlooked a lot. In the 1800s, the issue of slavery... Some of us look back and go, well, I didn't do that, and I wouldn't have done that. How do you know you wouldn't have? You live in the South. You and I, I think it's important that we condemn what happened in our past. We don't owe anyone an apology, but what happened there, we condemn it. If we don't condemn it, we partake in it. I'm reading a book right now, a history book on, on the, of slavery between 1837 and the Civil War. And everything in there about slavery, if if that book was written for our day, just put the word abortion. And it's a perfect fit. All the people that fought for slavery and hated abolitionists are the same people today that hate life and think it's okay to oppress a black man or a woman, to separate their families, treat them as less than human in our yesteryear are the same people that say, no, a woman's right should give her the right to kill the baby within her. Baby, I'm sorry, women's rights don't go that far. We don't even have the right to go up and shoot a dog, much less a baby in a mama's womb. But people fight for it. Condemn it, my friends. Condemn the sins of the past or be associated with it. Don't take a middle road. That was wrong. That was wicked. That was evil. The generations that, that did not condemn their fathers were whitewashing the tombs of the prophets and Jesus said, you are responsible for their deaths even though you weren't alive then. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged to this generation. Verse 52, woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. Worse words could never be told to a teacher. A scribe, a Pharisee, a pastor, our job is to open God's word and lead people to the truth. These people were doing what? You have taken the key of knowledge. That's the key of salvation. That what, what it means to enter into, what it means to be in the know, as we say. The key of knowledge. You've taken the key. You yourselves didn't enter and you hindered those who were entering. A false teacher, a religionist today is one who, A, does not open this book. B, does not preach this book. Some open it up. One particular preacher in our city holds it up every week, says, this is my Bible, and he never preaches from it. But somehow, it's this book holding it up is somehow powerful. I would love to hear him get up and preach Matthew or Luke chapter 11 or Matthew 23. Condemn sin. Call for repentance. Because here's the thing, folks. Listen to me. It's the most loving thing you can do. 
the most hateful thing you can do is to allow someone to live in their sin in the name of being nice or politically correct and after they die, burn for eternity in hell. Is that loving? Better to be offended at my words than to be offended at God himself when you meet him. Better to be offended by Lance Waldy. That man is offensive. I can't take any more of him. Good. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to be offensive. But I don't, I don't get a say in it. God told me to go preach this word. Lance, you, your existence on this planet is to go preach my word. Do it. I'll bring you home when I say, come home. And by golly, I'm going to be caught doing this until the day I die. Lord willing. Ah, that, that scares me there. Just at the end. I have the key of knowledge because I have the Bible, as do you. I'm no greater than you. I know what it means to be saved, and I have entered, and I want desperately from my heart for those people here. I don't know who you are, all of you. Some of you may not know Christ. I want you to know him. Why would I not? Maybe I know you and I don't like you. Perhaps. Do I want you to go to hell? Because I don't like them. I don't want them in heaven with me. I'm not, I'm pretty wicked, but I don't think I'm quite that wicked yet. Of course, I might not have met you yet. Maybe you are that bad. I can at least say that I love you enough to tell you, here's the key. The key, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't argue with him as these people were doing. Receive him. He is full of love, forgiveness. We're going to go into the, into the gymnasium where our baptistry is, underneath the stage, and we're going to dip people in water. Not because that saves them, but because these people want to tell the world, I'm saved. They want to proclaim it through this ordinance that Jesus gave us. Maybe you came here today. You didn't know anything about baptism and you were just going to sit still and get this time period over with. Somebody brought you. You don't really want it. You don't like it here. But something happened maybe. And you want to know more about Christ. You might even say, I want to be baptized. I have received him. I will baptize you. It would be my honor to do so. I usually interview people. I want to know what you know. But Jesus didn't do that. I don't know that it's always expedient. I'd love to see some no-name walk in. Lance, by profession of Jesus Christ, is now my Lord and Savior. I wish to be baptized. I'll dunk you. I'll hold you down a little bit longer, but I will dunk you. (laughs) Well, if you are so inclined, I hope you'll join us. Let me close us now for you you parents and remind you, would you go get your children after church? We'll meet over in that building in the next 10 minutes. Let me pray for us. Lord, in the name of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray, we come to you. You have made peace between you and us through the death of Jesus our Lord. We can pray in his name and be heard by you with filthy lips, with hearts that have gone astray and yet forgiven by the blood of Jesus. May that that fill us with the joy of service, not religion, May we be so overcome and overwhelmed by by the truth of that statement that you saved us by your grace through faith in Jesus, that the overflow of our lives is to worship you, 
not to gain favor with you. How much more favor can we get, Lord? You died for us to show us that you loved us and that you continue to love us. May we offer our lives to you as a living sacrifice because you saved us, not so that you will. Bless our time in the water as the gospel goes forth and the salvation of each one of these souls that will go under the water and come out, indicative of being washed clean and free of their sins for eternity to live in your presence. Bless that time. May it be honorable to you. Bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 